Part 18 of Volume 1 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 1 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. Translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Publicula, Part 1. Such was Solon and with him we compare Publicula, to whom the Roman people gave this surname later as a mark of honor. Before that he was called Publius Valerius, and was reputed to be a descendant of that ancient Valerius, who was most instrumental in making the Romans and the Sabines one people instead of enemies. For it was he, more than anyone else, that persuaded their kings to come together and settle their differences. Such being his lineage, Valerius, as we are told, while Rome was still a kingdom, was conspicuous for his eloquence and wealth, always employing the one with integrity and boldness in the service of justice, while with the other he gave liberal and kindly aid to the poor and needy. It was therefore clear that, should Rome become a democracy, he would at once be one of its foremost men. Now Tarquinius Superbus had not acquired his power honorably, but by the violation of divine and human laws. Nor did he exercise it in kingly fashion, but after the manner of an insolent and haughty tyrant. The people therefore hated him, resented his oppressions, and found occasion for revolt in the fate of Lucretia, who made away with herself after violence had been done to her. Lucius Brutus, engaging in the revolution, came to Valerius first of all, and with his most zealous assistance drove out the kings. Then, as long as the people were likely to elect one man as their commander in place of the king, Valerius acquiesced, thinking it more fitting that Brutus should have the office, because he had led the way to freedom. But the very name of monarchy was odious to the people, who thought it would be less vexatious to submit to an authority which was divided, and therefore proposed and demanded that two men should be elected to the highest office. Then Valerius who hoped that he would be chosen next to Brutus, and would be consul with him, was disappointed. For, against the wishes of Brutus, Tarquinius Collatinus, the husband of Lucretia, was elected as his colleague, instead of Valerius. He was a man of no greater excellence than Valerius, but the influential citizens were afraid of the kings, who were still putting forth many efforts outside, and trying to appease resentment inside the city and they therefore desired to have as their commander the most pronounced enemy of the royal family, believing that he would make no concessions to them. Valerius, accordingly, vexed that his desire to do his utmost for his country should be doubted, merely because he had received no private injury at the hands of the tyrants, withdrew from the Senate, gave up his practice as an advocate, and abandoned entirely his public activities. This caused anxious remark among the multitude, they feared lest, in his wrath, he should attach himself to the royal exiles, and subvert the established order of the city, which was in a dangerous pass. But when Brutus, who had his suspicions of certain others also, desired the senators to take a sacrificial oath, and set a day for the ceremony, Valerius went down with a glad countenance into the forum, and was the first to take oath that he would make no submission or concession to the Tarquins, but would fight with all his might in defense of freedom. This pleased the Senate and inspired the consuls with courage, and his actions speedily confirmed his oath. 
for envoys came from Tarquin, bringing letters calculated to seduce the people, and specious words by which they thought the multitude were most likely to be corrupted, coming as they did from a king who seemed to have humbled himself, and to ask only moderate terms. These envoys, the consuls thought, should be brought before the assembled people, but Valerius would not suffer it. He was unalterably opposed to giving poor men, who considered a war a greater burden than tyranny, occasions and excuses for revolution. After this, other envoys came, announcing that Tarquin abdicated his throne and ceased to wage war upon the city, but demanded for himself, his friends, and his kinsmen, their monies and effects, wherewith to maintain themselves in exile. Many were inclined to grant this favor, and Colatinus in particular joined in advocating it. But Brutus, a man of harsh and unyielding temper, ran forth into the forum and denounced his colleague as a traitor, because he would bestow the means for waging a war and maintaining tyranny on men to whom it were a terrible mistake to vote even a bare subsistence in exile. And when an assembly of the citizens was held, the first to speak among them was Gaius Minicius, a private man who exhorted Brutus and advised the Romans to see to it that the treasures fought with them against the tyrants, rather than with the tyrants against them. However, the Romans decided that, since they had the liberty for which they were at war, they would not sacrifice peace for the sake of wealth, but cast this also out along with the tyrants. Now, the wealth, of course, was of very slight consequence to Tarquin, but the demand for it was at once a test of the people's disposition and a means of instigating treachery among them. And it was with this that the envoys busied themselves, making the property merely a pretext for remaining in the city, and saying that they were selling part of it, and reserving part, and sending part of it away. At last they succeeded in corrupting two of the noble families of Rome, that of the Achillei, which had three senators, and that of the Vitellii, which had two. All these, by the mother's side, were nephews of Colatinus the consul, and besides the Vitellii were related in another manner to Brutus. For Brutus had married a sister of theirs, and she had borne him several sons. Two of these, who had come to manhood, and were near kindred and close companions, the Vitellii won over and persuaded to join the plot for betraying the city, and to ally themselves with the great family and the royal expectations of the Tarquins, and rid themselves of the stupidity and cruelty of their father. For they gave it the name of cruelty to that father's inexorable treatment of criminals, and as for his stupidity, he had for a long time, as it appears, feigned and assumed this, to ensure his safety among the cruel designs of the tyrants, and afterwards the surname of Brutus, which had been given him for it, clung to him. When, accordingly, the youths had been persuaded and held conference with the Aquilii, it was decided that all the conspirators should swear a great and dreadful oath, pouring in libation the blood of a slain man and touching his entrails. For this purpose they met in the house of the Aquilii, now, the room in which the ceremony was to be held was, as was natural, dark and somewhat desolate. Without their knowing it, therefore, a slave named Vindicius had concealed himself therein, not with design or with any inkling of what was to happen there. He merely chanced to be there, and when they came in with anxious haste, he was afraid to be seen by them, and hid himself behind a chest that lay there, 
so that he saw what they did and heard what they resolved upon. Their decision was to kill the consuls, and when they had written letters to Tarquin to this effect, they gave them to his envoys, who were living there as guests at the Aquilii, and were then present at the conspiracy. Their business transacted, the conspirators departed, and then Vindicius stole secretly away from the house. He knew not what use to make of what had befallen him, but was at a loss, considering it a dreadful thing, as it really was, to arraign the sons of Brutus before their father, or the nephews of Colatinus before their uncle, on the most abominable charges, and yet believing that no Roman in an important station should be entrusted with an important secrets. The last thing he could do, however, was to hold his peace, and was driven on by his knowledge of the affair. He made his way somehow to Valerius, attracted especially by the affable and kindly ways of the man, for he was easily accessible to all the needy, always kept open house, and never refused to hear or help one of the lowly. Accordingly, when Vindicius came to him and told him the whole story, in the presence of his brother Marcus only, and of his wife, Valerius was struck with consternation and fear, and would not let the man go, but shut him up in a room, and sent his own wife to guard the door. Then he ordered his brother to surround the royal residence, seize the letters if possible, and to take the servants into custody. He himself, with the numerous clients and friends who were always about him, and with a large company of retainers, went to the house of the Aquilii, who were not at home. Therefore, to the surprise of everybody, he forced the door, and came upon the letters lying in the quarters where the envoys were lodged. Meantime the Aquilii came up in hot haste, joined battle at the door, and sought to take away the letters. But Valerius and his party resisted the attack, threw their togas about their opponents' necks, and, after much struggling on both sides, at last succeeded in pushing them through the streets into the forum. The same success was had at the royal residence, where Marcus laid his hands on other letters which were to be conveyed away in the baggage, seized as many of the king's people as he could, and hailed them to the forum. When the consuls had quieted the tumult, Valerius ordered Vindicius to be brought from his house. The denunciation was made, the letters were read aloud, and the accused had no courage to reply. Most of the people held their peace for very sorrow, but a few spoke of exile as a penalty, wishing to do Brutus a kindness. They were also somewhat encouraged to hope by the tears of Colatinus and the silence of Valerius. But Brutus, calling each of his sons by name, said, Come, Titus, come, Tiberius, why do ye not defend yourselves against the denunciation? But when they made no answer, though he put the question to them thrice, he turned to the lictors and said, It is yours now to do the rest. These straightway seized the young men, tore off their togas, bound their hands behind their backs, and scourged their bodies with their rods. The rest could not endure to look upon the sight, but it is said that the father neither turned his gaze away, nor allowed any pity to soften the stern wrath that sat upon his countenance, but watched the dreadful punishment of his sons until the lictors threw them on the ground and cut off their heads with the axe. Then he rose and went away after committing the other culprits to the judgment of his colleague. He had done a deed which it is difficult for one either to praise or blame sufficiently. For either the loftiness of his virtue made his spirit incapable of suffering, or else the magnitude of his suffering made it unsensible to pain. In either case was his act a trivial one, or natural to a man, but either godlike or brutish. 
However, it is right that our verdict should accord with the reputation of the man, rather than that his virtue should be discredited through weakness in the judge. For the Romans think that the work of Romulus in building the city was not so great as that of Brutus in founding and establishing its form of government. After Brutus had left the forum, at this time, after a long consternation, horror and silence prevailed among all who remained, as they thought of what had been done. But soon the weakness and hesitation of Colatinus gave the Aquilii fresh courage. They demanded time in which to make their defense, and the surrender of Vindicius to them, since he was their slave and ought not to be in the hands of their accusers. Colatinus was willing to grant this request, and was about to dissolve the assembly with this understanding. But Valerius was neither able to surrender the slave, who had mingled with the throng about him, nor would he suffer the people to release the traitors and withdraw. So at last he seized the persons of the Aquilii, and, summoning Brutus to the scene, crying aloud that Colatinus was acting shamefully and laying upon his colleague the necessity of killing his own sons, and then thinking it necessary for himself to bestow upon their wives the lives of his country's betrayers and foes. The consul was indignant at this, and ordered that Vindicius should be taken away, whereupon the lictors pushed their way through the crowd, seized the man, and beat those who tried to rescue him. Then Valerius and his friends stood forth in the man's defense, while the people shouted for Brutus to come. He turned back, therefore, and came, and when silence had been made for him, said that for his sons he himself sufficed as judge, and he would leave the fate of the other traitors to the votes of the citizens, who were free, and anyone who wished might speak and try to persuade the people. However, by this time there was no need of oratory, but a vote was taken which unanimously condemned the men, and they were beheaded. Colatinus, as it would seem, was already under some suspicion on account of his relationship to the royal family, and the second of his names was also hateful to the people, who loathed the sound of Tarquin. But after these recent events he saw that he was altogether obnoxious, and therefore resigned his office, and withdrew secretly from the city. A new election was consequently held, and Valerius was triumphantly declared consul, thus receiving a worthy reward for his zeal. In this reward he thought that Vindicius ought to share, and therefore had a decree passed which made him, first of all, a freedman, a citizen of Rome, and entitled him to vote with any curia in which he chose to be enrolled. Other freedmen received the right of suffrage in much later times from Appius, who thus courted popularity. And from this Vindicius, as they say, a perfect manumission is to this day called Vindicta. After this, the property of the royal family was given to the Romans to plunder, and their house and palace was razed to the ground. But the pleasantest part of the field of Mars, which had belonged to Tarquin, was dedicated to that god. Now it chanced that it had just been reaped, and the grain still lying upon the ground. But since the field had been consecrated, they thought it not right to thresh it or use it in any way. They therefore with one accord carried the sheaves to the river and cast them in. In like manner they also cast in the trees which had been cut, and left the place wholly untilled and barren for the god of war. The quantities of stuff thus heaped together were not borne along by the current very far, but the advanced portions stopped and accumulated at the shallows which they encountered. The portions that followed these could not get through them, but impinged upon them, and blended inexorably with them, and the aggregation was made increasingly firm and fast by the action of the stream. 
for this brought great quantities of mud, and the addition of which increased the size and cohesion of the mass. And besides, the impacts of the current were not rude, but with a gentle pressure pushed and molded everything together. Owing to its size and position, the mass acquired fresh size, and an extent sufficient to receive most of which was brought down by the river. It is now a sacred island over against the city, containing temples of the gods and covered walks, and is called in the Latin tongue, inter duos pantes. Some, however, say that this did not happen when the field of Tarquin was consecrated, but in later times when Tarquinia devoted another field adjacent to this. Now Tarquinia was a holy virgin, one of the Vestals, and received great honors for this act, among which was this, that of all women her testimony alone should be received. The people also voted her permission to marry, but she did not avail herself of it. This is how the thing appeared, as the tale tells. But Tarquin, despairing of attempts to regain his throne by treachery, was eagerly welcomed by the Tuscans, who set out to restore him with a great force. The consuls led the Romans out to meet them, and arrayed their forces in certain sacred precincts, one of which was called the Arcian Grove, the other the Isuvian Meadow. When the engagement began, Aruns, son of Tarquin, and Brutus, the Roman consul, encountered each other. It was not by chance, but both were driven on by hatred and wrath, the one to attack a tyrant and foe of his country, the other to avenge himself on the author of his exile. They urged their horses to the combat, but since they engaged with fury rather than calculation, they were reckless of themselves, and fell by one another's hands. The battle which had such a dreadful beginning ended no less disastrously. The armies, after inflicting and suffering equal losses, were separated by a tempest. Valerius was therefore in perplexity, not knowing what the issue of the battle was, but seeing his soldiers as much disheartened by their own losses as they were encouraged by those of their enemies. So indistinguishable and equal was the slaughter on both sides. Each army, however, was more convinced of defeat by the near sight of its own dead than it could be of victory by conjecturing those of the enemy. When such a night came on as must needs follow such a battle, and both camps were quiet, they say that the grove was shaken, and a loud voice issued from it declaring the Tuscans had lost one man more in the battle than the Romans. The utterance was manifestly from some god, for at once the Romans were inspired by it to loud shouts of courage, while the Tuscans were panic-stricken and abandoned their camp in confusion, and were for the most part dispersed. As for those that remained, a little less than five thousand in numbers, the Romans fell upon them and took them prisoners and plundered the camp. And when the dead on both sides were numbered, those of the enemy were found to be eleven thousand three hundred, and those of the Romans as many, less one. It is said that this battle was fought on the last day of February. Valerius celebrated a triumph for it, being the first consul to drive into the city on a four-horse chariot, and the proceeding afforded a spectacle which was imposing and magnificent, not odious and offensive to the spectators, as some say, otherwise it would not have been continued with such ardor and emulation for countless years. The people were also pleased with the honors which Valerius bestowed upon his colleague at the funeral ceremonies. He even delivered a funeral oration in his honor, which was so admired by the Romans and won such favor that from that time on, when their great and good men died, encomiums were pronounced upon them by the most distinguished citizens. 
and this funeral oration of his is said to have been earlier than any among the Greeks, unless Anaximenes the orator is right in saying that the custom originated with Solon. But that which the rather displeased and offended the people of Valerius was this. Brutus, whom they regarded as the father of their liberties, would not consent to rule alone, but once and again chose a colleague to rule with him. But this Valerius, they said, in concentrating all power upon himself, is not a successor to the consulate of Brutus, to which he has no right, but to the tyranny of Tarquin. Yet why should he extol Brutus in words, while in deeds he imitates Tarquin, descending to the forum alone, escorted by all the rods and axes together, from a house no less stately than the royal house which he demolished? For as a matter of fact, Valerius was living in a very splendid house on the so-called Velia. It hung high over the forum, commanded a view of all that passed there, and was surrounded by steeps and hard to get at, so that when he came down from it the spectacle was a lofty one, and the pomp of his procession worthy of a king. Accordingly, Valerius showed what a good thing it is for men in power and high station to have ears which are open to frankness and truth instead of flattery. For when he heard it from his friends, who spared him no detail, that he was thought by the multitude to be transgressing, he was not obstinate or exasperated, but quickly got together a large force of workmen, and while it was still night, tore the house down, and raised it all to the ground. In the morning, therefore, the Romans saw what had happened, and came flocking together. They were moved to love and admiration for the man's magnanimity, but were distressed for the house, and mourned for its stately beauty, as if it had been human, now that envy had unjustly compassed its destruction. They were also distressed for their ruler, who, like a homeless man, was now sharing the homes of others. For Valerius was received into the house of his friends, until the people gave him a sight, and built him a house, of more modest dimensions than the one he had lived in before, where now stands the temple of Vicopota, so called. Wishing now to make not only himself, but also the government, instead of formidable, submissive, and agreeable to the multitude, he removed the axes from the lictor's rods, and when he came into the assembly, inclined and lowered the rods themselves to the people, emphasizing the majesty of the democracy. This custom the consuls observed to this day, and before the multitude were aware of it, he had succeeded, not by humbling himself, as they thought, but by checking and removing their envious feelings through such moderation on his part, and adding to his real influence over them just as much as he seemed to take away from his authority. And the people submitted to him with pleasure, and bore his yoke willingly. They therefore called him Publicola, a name which signifies people cherisher. This name prevailed over the older names which he had borne, and it is the name which I shall use for him in the remainder of this life. For he permitted any who wished to enter the lists and sue for the consulship, but before the installation of his colleague, not knowing who he would be, but fearing an opposition due to some jealousy or ignorance, he used his sole authority for the enactment of his best and most important measures. In the first place, he filled up the Senate, which was much reduced in numbers, for some had long before been put to death by Tarquin, and others had recently fallen in the battle with the Tuscans. Those who were enrolled in this body by him amounted, they say, to one hundred and sixty-four. After this he enacted several laws, one of which especially strengthened the position of the commons, 
by allowing a defendant to appeal to the people from the judgment of the consuls. A second made it a capital offense to assume a magistracy which the people had not bestowed. A third, following these, came to the relief of the poor. It lifted the taxes from the citizens, so that all engaged more zealously in manufactures and commerce. And the one which was enacted against disobedience to the consuls was thought to be no less popular in its character, and to be in the interest of the many rather than of the powerful. For the fine which it opposed on disobedience was only the worth of five oxen and two sheep. Now the value of sheep was ten obols, and that of an ox a hundred. For the Romans at that time did not use much coined money, but their wealth consisted in flocks and herds. Therefore to this day they call their substance peculium, from pecus, cattle, and their oldest coins are stamped with the figure of an ox, a sheep, or a hog, and they actually gave their own sons such surnames as Suilius, Bubocos, Caparius, and Porcius, the last two from Capra and Porcus, their words for goat and pig. End of Publicula, Volume 1